At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord. You know that I write sermon titles in the month of August, and by August 31st, I turn those titles over to the Penseras so that they can work three months ahead all the time on anthems and hymns and so on, planning our worship, because it takes a while to get an anthem to the form that you heard these two wonderful anthems this morning. So last August, I was already looking at this text and trying to figure out the title and lo and behold, two weeks ago, I was having breakfast one morning before coming to work, and here was the bizarro cartoon strip that said what I was trying to say. I told you about it last Sunday. But if you look carefully at the cartoon strip, I saw something else this week. This is a football fan in a stadium filled with people, and he has two of those big sponge foamy rubber hands to make his even bigger. But the one on the right hand is like this, which could mean simply three, but it's also the sign that Boy Scouts use both to salute and when they take the oath that they will tell the truth, that they will be honest. I don't know if the bizarro cartoonist knows about that or not, but that's the way the right hand looks. And the left hand, all five pointed up. He may just mean three and five, because on this big sponge hand, two feet tall, it says, we're number eight. And then the little caption said, sports and reality are contradictory. And you and I understand, we see these fanatics on our television whose team may be three and seven, but if they score a touchdown, suddenly all the fans are screaming, we're number one. So it should not surprise us that the disciples of Jesus come to him and ask, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is going to be greatest? Now, Matthew is following Mark here. He's giving us Mark's telling of this story word for word until he gets to this part about how they ask the question of Jesus. Mark's gospel, remember, the disciples are not real bright. They just don't ever quite get it. All the way to the resurrection, they don't quite get it. Matthew gives us a much better picture, more favorable of the disciples. In Mark's gospel, the disciples are quarreling among themselves. They're disputing who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew tones that down and just says the disciples came and asked a question. Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But even here, they're not getting it, are they? They assume they're in. It's always about who's in and who's out, isn't it? I'm in, somebody else is out. 
And now that I'm in, I don't want to just be in. I want to be the biggest one who's in. I want to be the greatest one who's in. Who's that going to be? If they've been listening, if they listen to the end of his physical life here, maybe they will get it. Did you see the article and photograph in the Tulsa World this week of a new display in a museum down in Salta, Argentina? It's a young woman, actually a girl, 15 years old. Uh, this beautifully mummified body is kept now in a plastic see-through container through which very cold air at just the right humidity level is being circulated hoping that this mummy will not deteriorate because it's been contained in snow and ice for over 500 years. She was a sacrifice of the Incas to the corn god. Now this is not the first sacrifice of the Incas that's been found. 25 years ago, I read that our National Geographic Society had discovered such a body high up in the Andes Mountains. This girl's body was found more than 22,000 feet up in the Andes. Many of us have been up Pikes Peak. It's barely 14,000. Can you add 8,000 more to that and imagine how cold it would be? This 15-year-old is not warmly dressed. She's beautifully dressed in the dress of her people, fancy beadwork and so forth, but not warmly dressed to be left at 22,000 feet. Guess what? They must have had an awfully good corn crop that fall because they decided, well, we made sacrifice last year and we had a really great crop. Maybe we should offer up more children this year. So when they had enough drinking of that fermented corn, they decided, why not send a six-year-old girl with her and a seven-year-old boy? This time they found three together the 15-year-old girl, the 6-year-old girl, the 7-year-old boy, all encased in ice and snow more than 500 years ago. You know what the Jews did in their fall celebrations? They began a 10-day period called Rosh Hashanah. It starts this Thursday here in Tulsa. At Temple Israel, at Congregation B'nai Emuna, they will begin Rosh Hashanah. 10 days of introspection prayer. Did I do something wrong this year I ought not have done? Maybe a number of things. Can I remember them? Can I write them down? What good might I have done that I didn't get done? Somebody I could have helped? Some cause? I might have been a voice that made the difference? What good might I have done? And after ten days of soul searching and prayer they come to Yom Kippur. That day of atonement when they pray that God will move from the seat of judgment to the seat of mercy. While pagans all around them, even ones in the Western Hemisphere, the Incas over here, are having rip-snorting big parties at harvest time, offering up their children, the Jews who produced Jesus of Nazareth are having a time of introspection, of prayer, of confession, of seeking the atoning, redeeming, never-failing love of God. Who's the greatest in this kingdom? There ought to be no doubt about that. It's our God. He's the greatest, and if He is appropriately greatest in our lives, then all the rest of us who get in will fall into proper place under God's guidance and direction. Number two, Jesus tells us what He has in mind here. He calls to Himself a little child, 
and said, except you become as one of these, you must be changed. Now, this word changed here for us is a Greek word, but as far as we know, Jesus didn't speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic, and Aramaic was uh, sort of a street version of Hebrew that had become Aramaic over the centuries. Uh, in Aramaic and Hebrew, the word would have been shub. Uh, this is the word normally translated for us, repent. Jesus said, uh, let me tell you about the kingdom. You have to repent. And repent means not only being sorry, but being willing to be turned. The word has to do with turning. So being turned and sent in a different direction. Being turned and sent in a different direction. I was reading a column the other day. I'm always amazed when the Wall Street Journal has a title like this, Don't Suffer the Little Children. The writer obviously is familiar with the King James Version of the Bible. In the King James Version, it says Jesus called a child and said to the disciples, Suffer the little children to come unto me. This writer says, Don't suffer the little children. He's got four sons. His name is Tony Woodleaf. And he says, trying to help four little boys become responsible men is more job than he and his wife have figured out just how to do. And so he's analyzed different people's opinions about the nature of little children. Well, let me share just a few sentences. The vision of humans as inherently sinful and selfish resonates with many of us who are parents. Nobody who's ever stood between a toddler and the last cookie should still harbor a belief in the inherent virtue of humankind. An afternoon in the playground is apt to make one toss out the idealist Rousseau, who wrote, Man is a compassionate and sensible being, in favor of the more realistic Hobbes, who wrote, All mankind is in a perpetual and restless desire for power. I've signed on to Mr. Sewell's summation of a parent's duty. Each new generation born is, in effect, an invasion of civilization by little barbarians who must be civilized before it's too late. <laughs> People are innately selfish and they'll always desire more goodies than someone else has. Education expert Stephanie Marshall writes exuberantly, the fundamental purpose of schooling is to liberate the goodness and genius of children. This notion that humans are inherently angelic and that it's society that corrupts them is at the heart of much bad parenting as well as inept schooling. Even Dr. Benjamin Spock, whose advice in his book Baby and Child Care was so often blamed for parental permissiveness, had seen enough before his death. He finally said, I can hardly bear to be around rude children. I have the impulse to spank them and to give a lecture to their parents. Mr. Woodleaf says, take another look at what it means to be like a child. And he's not a theologian. The theologians say that Jesus said humility, humbleness, that's the virtue we're looking for here. Dr. Edward Schweitzer says, you see, every child is aware of his or her littleness. Every child is aware of his or her littleness and dependence upon someone who's bigger. Did you hear the thunder Friday night? When we were talking with our Jason Saturday morning, I asked, did your girls hear the thunder? Oh, yes, he said, the 
five-year-old and the two-year-old were running for their mother. Children are aware of their littleness and their need for one who's bigger, stronger, more able. Have you ever asked a child, are you three now? To have that child say, no, I'm three and a half. Are you four now? I'm four and a half. They want to be bigger as soon as possible, but they are aware of their littleness. And Jesus said, that's the kind of folks who get into the kingdom. Number three. Then we go into three verses in the passage we just read where one Greek word in its verb and noun form is used six times. Uh, in the verb form, it's kandaviso. In the noun form, it's skandalon. We get from it the word scandal. It's translated here for you and me as stumbling block. We know there are stumbling blocks. Blocks for stumbling come along, but woe if you're one of those who is a stumbling block to someone else. You're not to be a stumbling block. If you are, it would be better for a stone, it says a big one here, a big millstone. It's not literally what it says in Greek. In Greek it says, milos onikos. Milos is a stone, onikos is a donkey. It's a burro. This stone is too big to be pushed around, turned by a human being. You need a beast to do it. It's that big. Better for you that one that big was tied around your neck and you were thrown into the middle of the Sea of Galilee than to lead somebody wrong, to be a stumbling block. There's a new reality show on the way. I know you'll be thrilled about that. This one's called Kid Nation. You've been seeing all the ads? Kid Nation. Forty kids, youngest eight, oldest 15, have been put down in a ghost town in New Mexico, supposedly with no adult supervision. Just camera people recording what happens. Put down 40 kids in a ghost town in New Mexico and see what happens. William Golding had an idea about that. You know, he wrote Lord of the Flies about a little boy's choir being evacuated to get them away from the onslaught of the Japanese armies when the plane went down on a deserted island in the Pacific all adults were killed only the little choir boys survived William Golden thinks that's about as innocent as you can get right little choir boys within a few pages they are hunting each other with pointed sticks and one of the little boys is dead what happens with little boys and little girls I pray every night for our six grandchildren every night and I pray that we who love them most will be able to provide proper boundaries that keep bigger ones from hurting them. That these six whom Gail and I love so much will be spared the biggest hurts of life that come to so many children. They'll be spared. But this reviewer of Kid Nation says that the one thing we cannot protect them from is themselves. Themselves. What will they learn about who they are and what God would help them to become? Hmm? To be faithful 
Number four. Well, guess what? Not only are others stumbling blocks, but so often we're stumbling blocks to ourselves. And if you've got a hand that's misleading you or an eye that's misleading you, better cut it off, pluck it out, than to end up on that, the words Gehenna, it's that city dump just outside Jerusalem, that dump that burned 24 hours a day where common folks' bodies were sometimes thrown after death if they didn't have anybody who cared enough about them to come and take their body and bury it. Better not to let a hand or an eye mislead you than to end up on the dump pile in the city dump. Hmm? The other day I was reading the Wall Street Journal early morning. There was a picture of Hal Holbrook. I immediately thought about the night Gail and I saw Mr. Holbrook do the one-man show on Mark Twain. He was wonderful. We've seen him in movies and television, as you have. He's 82 years old now. And this picture of him looks like an 82-year-old man, but he's playing a role in Thornton Wilder's Our Town. He's the stage manager. And when Thornton Wilder wrote this play back in the 1930s, stage manager is always written out with a capital S and a capital M. You get the feeling this fellow's God is telling you a story about a little town in New Hampshire called Grover's Corner. Stage is very bare, unusual in the 1930s, that a play would be staged on Broadway, bare as it is. Stage manager sort of setting it up for you in your mind. Eventually there are folding chairs brought in by the various characters. You live out a little bit of their lives in the first act, and in the second act you're aware that now there are folding chairs separated a little bit from the town. These people have all died. They're in the cemetery on the hill just outside town. And one of them is a person you've met before. She's Emily. Emily got married. Emily and her husband were expecting a baby in childbirth. Emily died. And so these people who converse with each other out in the cemetery, those who've died, Emily asked stage manager if she could go home again. And finally, stage manager agrees to let her have one day. What day would you like? She picked her 12th birthday. And she gets to go home. She can see her mother and father. She sees her mother scurrying around the kitchen fixing a birthday cake, but they can't see her. Can't talk to her. Don't know she's there. And then comes the key line, I think, in the play. Do human beings, while they're alive, ever realize how very special every, every day is? And stage manager says, no. Well, a few poets, no one else.